Hi, I'm Jennifer Stewart, and I'm the president and CEO of the Canadian Independent Petroleum Marketers Association. Canada is changing, and so are the sectors that support it. On Pump Chats, presented by National Energy Equipment, we're taking a deep dive into what Canada's most prominent fuel and convenience companies are doing amidst a pandemic, how they're innovating to be sustainable, and we'll also be speaking with sector experts to get some crystal ball predictions. Buckle up and get ready to hear how our fuel and convenience sector is making waves on Pump Chats. Hello and welcome to our listeners. I'm Michelle Coatsmather, Vice President of SITMA. Today on Pump Chats, I am so pleased to be speaking with Dennis DeRossier, President of DeRossier Automotive Consultants, Inc. Many of our listeners will know Dennis as the go-to guy for insights into the North American automotive industry and as a leading auto sector analyst. His thinking is sought by executives throughout the automotive sector, government policymakers, and the media. Dennis has been a leading innovator in discovering the internal algorithms that drive all elements of the automotive industries across manufacturing, distribution, and retail. He is well known for introducing excitement to North American automotive analysis, cutting through the political spin to offer a fact-based point of view. Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, let's dive right in. So listen, with governments focusing on emissions reduction, can you chat a bit about sort of your forecasts or views for EV penetrations into the Canadian automotive market? What I've been telling clients is that the horse is out of the barn, the barn door has been locked, and all roads lead to electric vehicles. The issue that I've had with uh, most of the hype around uh, this particular topic is the timing. And so uh, there's estimates that we could be dominant in sales, at least, not vehicles on the road, by the middle of this decade and no later than 2035 is kind of the prevailing view. And I believe that is just outrageously optimistic that, uh, you know, there's 28 million vehicles on the road. And all but about 200 and some odd thousand of them are internal combustion engine vehicles. And a lot of those vehicles are still going to be on the road feeding your members' uh, coffers right through to the middle of this century, possibly even later. And so it is a threat, but it's a lot further out than a lot of people are talking about. And thus, someone uh, like you know, a chain of gas stations has time to think about it, strategize, look at all the various options and to monitor it very carefully. If it's happening quicker than what I think, then obviously they need to react. I suspect that it's going to happen a lot slower than what most people are talking about. And therefore, they have time to uh, save their capital and to employ it in other ways, uh, waiting for the, uh, the shoe to drop, you might say. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I mean, it's important for the retail side to be keeping track of this and, you know, taking the evolution seriously. But at the same time, there's there's no cause for panic. There's room for retailers to be thoughtful as they plan for, you know, business strategies that allow for diversification. Would you say you that? Talking to mm-hmm. some of your members, there is a mm-hmm. lot of panic out there. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, I have chatted and had uh uh, long discussions with uh, a number of your members, uh, 
And there's always one or two or three inside their management team that you might say, uh, well, they may own a Tesla. That's the most popular one. And I call people who own Tesla Teslalians. They're committed. And there's no doubt in their mind that uh, the electric revolution is today. But when you actually look at the numbers, you know, it's a very different story. Mm -hmm. You know, I think to that point, we've seen a flurry of government investments in EV charging installation in particular, as well as EV manufacturing. So, you know, I'm curious to know in your perspective, are these subsidizes actually incentivizing consumer purchasing habits, though? Well, the the subsidies that worked are direct subsidies to buy an electric vehicle. And I'll give you a really good example. Ontario, for I guess it was almost two years, had a $14,000 subsidy to buy uh, an electric vehicle. And because of political pushback, primarily because most electric vehicles are bought by very wealthy people, and why are we subsidizing wealthy people to buy electric vehicles? They dropped it a year ago last September. Uh, when it was in place, Ontario went for buying between three and 500 electric vehicles a month. Starting in uh, a year ago, last September, it dropped to under 10 a month. And so kind of a really good example of the importance of, of direct subsidies, you know, three to 500 down to less than a dozen a month uh, is quite a drop. Mm -hmm. uh, we do need an electric vehicle charging station. I suspect that the, in fact, I know that one of the biggest barriers to buying electric vehicles is range issues. And um, the charging infrastructure is expected to solve a lot of that. And so it may be also an important element uh, as an incentive, but I think it's much more than that. And I'll give you another really good example. The best charging infrastructure in this country is Quebec, and the best electricity rates are in Quebec because of Quebec Hydro, mm -hmm. and the best overall subsidies are in Quebec. And indeed, Quebec has a higher penetration of electric vehicles in Ontario and most other provinces. But the as a result of that, but the highest penetration of vehicles, Quebec is in the 7% range of new vehicle sales, not vehicles on the road. But the, uh, the highest penetration of new vehicle sales is in BC, almost double Quebec. And BC doesn't have as advanced charging infrastructure or electricity rates, et cetera, et cetera. And so you kind of go, well, why? Why would BC be almost twice the penetration of electric vehicles than Quebecers. And when you actually get to know BC, and I've been out there many times and done a lot of studies related to the automotive community in British Columbia, that's where the green movement is. It's mm -hmm. no different than in Europe where, you know, greens are minority parties in a lot of legislatures. And so it's consumers' attitude. You know, you have, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but a lot of tree huggers out in British Columbia uh, it is very, very environmentally sensitive province, especially in the lower mainland. And so, thus, because they believe in the whole climate change issue and, and are as green as you're going to find across Canada, they're embracing electric vehicles. It's not because of the incentives and it's not because of the charging infrastructure. It's because they believe that this is what you have to do in order to have a safe climate to live in uh, long term. So, mm -hmm. th so there's a lot of moving parts is what I'm saying to this. And it's not as clear as just throwing money at it. Yeah. 
I, I think that's a like a really fair statement. I mean, and the reality too is, uh, you know, you just said a lot of moving parts. I mean, when we talk about low carbon transportation options, that's much more than EV as well. I mean, we're talking about biofuel blend opportunities, uh, hydrogen. I mean, that's there's been lots of discussion around how hydrogen is going to play a role in, in transportation energy. So, I, you know, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. I mean, what are we looking at? It's it's I mean, diversification, I think, in the long term is probably a, a positive thing. But how are those pieces all going to play together, do you think, in the long term? Well, two parts to that question. One is that the alternate fuels out there, there's a very long list. You mentioned hydrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, what about solar? What about mm -hmm. ethanol? What about uh, propane, natural gas, butanol? There's a lot of uh, fuels out there that the vehicle companies are uh, uh, experimenting with. And indeed, Toyota is bound, bet, and determined to put hydrogen on the road. That's their number one priority as an alternate fuel. They don't even have a plug-in electric vehicles. Uh, they're going with with hydrogen as a uh, as their source of energy, and so so that's a big part of it. All the alternate fuels mm -hmm. that can be used, but you're missing the biggest one. Mm -hmm. and that is your standard fuel that you buy mm -hmm. daily. You know, the vehicle companies are well aware of the difficulties that uh, for the last 16 years they've had selling hydrogen vehicles. Uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, three, four weeks ago where the president of, of Hyundai was being interviewed. And one of the questions was, well, boy, you'd sell a lot more electric vehicles if you were to promote them and have them in car dealers lots. And uh, Mr. Romano quickly interrupted and says, we have close to 5,000 electric Konais sitting in car dealers lots and people just don't want to buy them. And so uh, this has been a real problem. Like I say, they've been around for 16 years and in grand total Canadians over those 16 years have bought less than 300,000 of them, more in the last few years, mind you, like uh, granted. And so the vehicle companies are worried that they won't be able to meet some of the regulatory hurdles in front of them. And so they're putting as much money into improving the fuel efficiency of your regular carbon-based gasoline that you guys pump billions of liters a year of, not just electric vehicles or any of the other alternate ones. And if I had to identify the number one threat to one of your members, it would be the fuel efficiency of your Joe Blow internal combustion engine vehicle is a bigger threat right now than electric vehicles. Mm. We look at it very carefully. Uh, you know, we do an annual analysis of fuel efficiency of every vehicle that's being sold. And the average uh, yearly in improvement in fuel efficiency is somewhere in the 2% range, give or take, perhaps uh, a few tenths of a point. And so over a decade, and we have actual data to, to show this, over the past decade at least, the average fuel efficiency of any individual vehicle has improved by approximately 20%, give or take 2% a year over 10 years. Interestingly, though, is that every time the vehicle companies improve fuel efficiency of a particular model, the consumer moves to bigger, more powerful models that uh, eliminate much of that fuel efficiency improvements. Mm. And so the overall in fuel efficiency improvement of the fleet that's being sold is improved very little by a few percentage points, even though that any individual vehicle 
is somewhere 15 to 20% more fuel efficient. And you see mm. that every day. Just go for a drive, open up your window and look what cars are driving by or vehicles driving by. And you see all these big SUVs and pickup trucks and things like that. You know, Saskatchewan is 70, 80%. Well, in fact, it's above 80% uh, light truck now. And every light truck is about uh, two liters per 100 kilometers less fuel efficient than the equivalent size passenger car, be it a compact SUV or CUV versus a compact car, or intermediate SUV versus intermediate car, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I've said many times that if the government really wanted to tackle climate change and do something about this, they've got the wrong target. Mm-hmm. Put aside the incentive issue, which uh, uh, are, is so expensive that governments can't afford them. That's why they're dropping them and politically dangerous. But if they really wanted to do something, they need to target the consumer, not the auto industry or the oil sector. It's the consumer that makes the decision. You can go into virtually any car dealer. There's 3,800 of them across Canada. And there's gas misers on the lot to be sold. And there's gas guzzlers. And there's everything in between. And the consumers are choosing to go with less fuel efficient vehicles. They like the power. They like the horsepower. They like the torque, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. All of which takes away from fuel efficiency. Now, can you name a politician that will tell a consumer that they can't buy that absolute gorgeous uh, big honking pickup truck that they've always dreamed of because it's now become more fuel efficient and affordable to buy. Right. But uh, no, you can't buy that pickup truck. You got to buy, you know, that uh, intermediate sized passenger car, which is substantially more fuel efficient, mm-hmm. but quickly out of power. There's a disconnect. I mean, that's so obvious, right, between sort of, you know, what government is investing in, what is being manufactured, and then what's actually being purchased by the consumer. And so, you you know, you reference your point about, you know, incentives might be better served being directed to the consumer. But do you think incentives alone are really enough to change consumer buying habits? Because, you know, what you just mentioned is almost psychological. People are buying these, you know, bigger vehicles for very different reasons and motivations. And would an incentive alone really change that? Well, I'm a a classically trained economist that believes strongly in this fellow called Adam Smith, and he has this invisible hand, Mm -hmm. which is the consumer. And I don't believe incentives should be offered because Adam Smith and his invisible hand is more, more powerful than any consumer. Remember, we buy 2 million new vehicles a year in this country, and there's 28 million on the road that need to be replaced. And you start to offer even a small incentive and times two million, you know, a thousand dollar incentive is two billion dollars and and going up. And you'd multiply that times the 15 years that it would take to take uh, all of these uh, ICE vehicles off the road and replace them with electric vehicles. You're talking of trillions of dollars in Canada alone of subsidies. And I just don't see the threat on climate change as big when we're making so much improvement on fuel efficiency with individual vehicles. Like I say, uh, in the last decade, the average vehicle has improved in fuel efficiency by 20%. And that means that uh, that's 20% less carbon entering society. You know, I think last week's uh, Supreme Court decision to allow the government to regulate carbon, uh, the price of carbon, 
is probably uh, a more appropriate policy. Uh, although watch the liberals get kicked out if they go aggressive on that. And so, again, you're tackling, when you do carbon taxes, when you tax gasoline, when you tell a consumer that they can't buy something uh, or you force them to buy something, they vote against you. And that's the reality that's out there. And so, mm-hmm. and an awful lot of it isn't fair to specific companies. And I'll get, I'll get example after example after example. Uh, in Quebec, which is the most aggressive talking about EVs, primarily because of Quebec Hydro, Mazda in Quebec, it's their largest market. They have the highest penetration. And Mazda, and and Quebec has a zero emission vehicle mandate by the middle of this decade. Mazda doesn't even have a hybrid vehicle, yet alone a plug-in hybrid vehicle or a plug-in electric vehicle. And so, you know, I'm not sure how many car dealers are in Quebec, Mazda car dealers, but there's probably at least 100 or more. And they employ a lot of people. And why are you punishing these people when Mazda also has the, I think, third best fuel efficiency of ICE vehicles sold in Canada, third or fourth anyway? Mm -hmm. So they've done their job. You know, they've got very fuel efficient vehicles that are selling on a car dealers that just don't happen to be ZEVs. And a ZEV mandate is saying you cannot sell these very fuel-efficient ICE vehicles. And it's, it's, a lot of this just doesn't make sense. You know, you mentioned something interesting. I want to go back to this just for a quick second. Uh, we're talking about sort of the politics of it all. And, and, you know, policy obviously is driven by ideology. And the recent, um, you know, the Supreme Court's decision on carbon tax, you know, so the the federal liberal government has been very clear that that's that they're putting their eggs in that basket, right? That's where they really see sort of the biggest return on investment for them from a path to net zero anyway. So yes. if you were an opposition party, though, because let's face it, we're on the cusp of a federal election. It's coming. You know, it's probably a matter of months. So if you're an opposition party, what are you putting forward as an alternative then to the carbon tax? Well, there is very little that they can put forward. I think that they'll talk in very broad terms, you know, of advertising campaign or pushing the vehicle companies to become more fuel efficient and things like that, that you really don't need a tax. But the tax actually works. Again, another example to to touch on this. You go back a few years when gasoline prices were absolutely through the roof. I buy premium fuel. At one point, it was almost two bucks or a little over two bucks a liter. That's a lot. Right now, it's down to, I don't know, $1.40 or something a liter has been a lot lower than that. We monitor literally uh, almost on a, on a week-by-week basis, but certainly month-by-month, uh, exactly what's being bought in this country from a vehicle point of view. We're kind of the clearinghouse for vehicle sales. And if gas prices went down by five or 10 cents, it's almost as if, you know, Bob would come home and say, hey, Mabel, did you see that fuel prices went down by 10 cents last week? Uh, we can afford that gas guzzler now. And, and vice versa. You know, Bob would come home and say, oh, my God, you know, we really want that SUV. But did you see that fuel prices are still uh, up 10, 15 cents over they were uh, just a few months ago? Well, we better wait. Mm. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, month to month, uh, you could monitor the sales of the most fuel efficient vehicles. And if gas prices were high, those vehicles sold like hotcakes. And if gas prices dropped within the month, this isn't waiting 
you know, six months or a year or two years for consumer impact, month to month, you would see wild swings based on gas prices and you could graph it and they would follow each other up and down immediately, like almost like the same day. If we had daily data, you could probably see that. And so gas mm-hmm. prices and the price mechanism, by the way, gas prices are targeted at the consumer. You know, Adam Smith is invisible hand is the consumer. And indeed, they work. And so they are just very politically sensitive. And I imagine, and um, I'm not good at predicting political issues, but I would bet a lot that if Trudeau becomes very aggressive with carbon tax, especially on fuel, that there's going to be a political kickback. Mm. Yet alone, if he, you know, a carbon tax is going to affect all elements of your day-to-day life. Um, you know, home heating, you know, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, Ontario, and I have to heat by propane. And so that's going to get whacked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, Dennis, I think one of the reasons that our our members in the industry sort of writ large enjoys hearing from you and getting your insights is that, you you know, you're very pragmatic in your perspectives, which, you know, can, can be refreshing. So on that thread, I think what I'd love to do is sort of wrap up this conversation with uh, just to get your perspectives on the practicalities of it all. I think as an association and, and our members in particular, there's this broad understanding that some kind of an evolution is coming. It's it's not going to happen overnight. It's we've got a long trajectory, but that they need to be a part of, you know, retailers need to be a part of the conversation. So what does that look like on the ground? You know, how would you sort of recommend retailers adapt and prepare for an eventual long-term shift in terms of you know what fuel retail looks like. You will appreciate my first thought of this, and I've got a number of them, is that now with this uh, next decade being really critical on this topic alone, they need a very strong association to represent them. Any individual company has a role, obviously, to play in terms of lobbying government and being on top of the issues and monitoring issues. But, you know, I'm not sure how many members you have, hundreds. Uh, Why do it hundreds of times when you got an association if they're properly funded with the resources and they can hire smart people to be monitoring it for them? And I think the role of a trade association is enhanced in this situation. And I don't want to get into a lot of examples. I've done too many already. But, you know, I was part of the Auto Parts Association. And when trade policy was a big issue, the association had a huge role. As trade policy disappeared, the association struggled. Uh, Your association is a huge role in this. I think from an individual company point of view, uh, it's going to be very different across all the different regions in, in Canada. And so if you, I mentioned BC, especially the lower mainland, province-wide new electric vehicle sales in BC are 15% of the market. I don't have Vancouver at my fingertips, mm-hmm. but I, I could see Vancouver being substantially higher than that. I'm not sure whether it's 20% or 30%. And your members operating in Vancouver need to react to that. You know, and if that means putting uh, quick charging stations in place, even though the capital cost tends to be quite high, you need to do that. I do know Alberta uh, very well. I just uh, had a, an opportunity to look in detail at Alberta. And the uh, sales of, of new, again, electric vehicles, especially battery electric vehicles, 
is less than a tenth of one percent, same as Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. So why would you be putting out the capital in Calgary and Edmonton to react to this when, you know, in those two particular situations? And in fact, those provinces, uh, Manitoba is very, very low. All of the Atlantic provinces are very, very low. Uh, you're probably looking at 2040, 2050 before it might make sense to really uh, aggressively attack this issue. Again, uh, so geography is important. Uh, monitoring the situation, which I think is, a, is an important role for your trade association, but individual companies uh, have the wherewithal, especially the big chains, to do detail analysis of it. And so they need to be aggressive as, as well. And also, as you touched on earlier, uh, the alternate fuels. In some situations, developing an alternate fuel uh, capability probably should come in ahead of developing charging stations. Mm-hmm. And so, because we, w- we will have uh, hydrogen, we will have uh, the many that, you know, diesel uh, has fallen off quite a bit because of Volkswagen, but it still is out there, especially in the uh, commercial pickup truck and medium heavy duty truck industry. I haven't given up on uh, E85 or E95 ethanol. Uh, there are situations with propane and natural gas, all of which could be one station on one part of town may need some of this capability because of the vehicles on the road in that part of the uh, and the fuel use in that part of the city, whereas on the other side of the city, you don't need it. And so it requires, you know, a uh, real careful look at return on invested capital. That's mm-hmm. going to be the critical element. If you can get a return on your invested capital, then you do it. If you can't, I'm not sure how you sell it to a board of directors. Yeah. ROA is so key. Thank you again. I think your views are always, you know, frank and and honest, but insightful. So thank you. And we look forward to having you back on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's on in a few years to prove that I was right rather than wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate that. Okay. Thanks so much, Dennis. Bye-bye. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen and subscribe to Pump Chats presented by National Energy Equipment anywhere you find your podcasts. Until next time.